so you're the person who wants to burn everything down. And I said, yep, that's me. And we were off. That was it. We were just pals from that moment on. Thank you for joining us for our first Art360 podcast of 2023. Art360 Foundation is an independent charity supporting artists and estates with the creation of archives. You can find out more about what we do on our website. In this podcast, I'll be talking to artist and writer Lynn McRitchie about her film Towers of Ilium, which was released in 2013 and shot in Thurrock in Essex, UK. The purpose of the podcast is to think about legacy, to experiment with different ways in which artists' work can be referenced, understood and encountered in the present and future. The intention through hosting this conversation is to create a space for the voices and perspectives of artists on their own work, and in this podcast, to get under the surface of an artwork which is complex, multi-layered, collaborative and connected to place and time across centuries. In half an hour, we're really only able to discuss certain aspects of the film and the many contexts and experiences it references. So I'd encourage you to also watch Towers of Ilium for yourself. You can find the film on Vimeo and also in the description for this podcast. This conversation was also recorded in two parts, so you might hear some change in the sound halfway through. Nevertheless, I hope you enjoy learning more about Lynn McRitchie and the making of her film. So I just want to begin by just asking you, Lynn, if you can describe, you know, your background as an artist. Yes, well, it's lengthy and complex, beginning in the 70s. Um, I'm both an artist and a writer. Um, began in the 70s, moved into writing throughout the 80s and 90s and came back into art production in the late 90s, which is what I'm focused on now. Um, great. And then also, I guess, you know, what initially drew you to Thurrock? <laughs> well, it's a long story. Um, it's a long story. Uh, it, and it all begins in Chinakali. I was taking part in the first, as far as I know, the only Chinakali Biennale. They were showing a video of mine. So I got there and realised on the six-hour bus ride from Istanbul that we were actually driving down the Gallipoli Peninsula. And as you go down, you see all these war memorials and then you think, oh, gosh, heavens, I didn't know I was going here. And, and the other thing I didn't know in my supreme and sublime ignorance was that a little bit further down is the site of Troy, the ancient Troy. So anyway, I was very, very struck with the idea of this particular part of the surface of the earth, if you like, being somewhere where war recurred again and again and again through time. So being driven back to Istanbul, we were driving along and it was a thunderstorm, terrible thunderstorm, skating along the motorway in, in all this rain. And I suddenly got this idea in my head that I wanted to make an artwork about the recurrence of war. And I wanted to make that work based on building a tower and burning it down. This was very, 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 very clear in my mind. 
So I had a studio in the East End at that time, and I thought, well, where in or close to London can I build a tower and burn it down? So I got a tube and bus map, studied it carefully, and out east, much further east, was a place called Perfleet. And next to the name Perfleet, it said um, Military Museum. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll start there. And found myself for the very first time by the Thames Estuary. And there was indeed a military museum there. And I met the people who ran it. And it was a local museum. And they'd gathered together all this stuff from their friends and neighbours, basically relating to the Second World War, mostly. So this was extraordinary. I couldn't believe this. But here it was. You know, the, the kind of link that I was seeking was right there. It would also be really great at this point if you're able just to describe Towers of Ilium and, and what that is for people listening. Yes, Towers of Ilium is a short film. It's 15 minutes long. It is a retelling... <laughs> this will sound ridiculous. It's a retelling of the story of the Iliad uh, with skinheads. Mm -hmm. So that's the nutshell description. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess the thing that is really striking about like the towers of Ilium is Ilium as a place like mm. what you know where and what is Ilium and how does Ilium do you think connect to Thurrock? Um, Helen it's Helen of Troy mm. Helen of Troy the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium mm. that's where the title comes from mm. and of course the connection goes back to Turkey it goes back to Chinakli it goes back it goes back to the site of Troy it literally goes back to the site of Troy so that title refers in itself to Troy and that, that's really important because that very title links the place of the shoot and the the history the deep 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 history of warfare which is basically what I was investigating. Do you feel that there are particular characters in the Iliad that kind of encapsulate the idea of war that's then kind of like transferred into the film, into the Towers of Ilium film. Yes, absolutely, definitely. The character of Achilles appears in the film because um, he, he gives a kind of commentary on war, if you like, because he's the big hero. But what's he doing at the beginning of the Iliad? He's sulking in his tent. And he's, he's fed up fighting, basically. And he's questioning himself. Why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing all this fighting? What's it for? Why don't I just go home? And he actually has this internal dialogue. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, it's true. I mean, this is obviously my take on the Iliad. Heaven knows what Greek scholars think of it, but this is my, this is my take, <laughs> this is my film, and this is my take. And the great works of art, one of the things that they do is they, they stimulate one's own thinking about the great questions of the age. And Achilles actually, he manifests these and he expresses these directly. So he's the guy, he's, he's in the film. <laughs> What's so interesting about that is that it's not actually just character-specific. That, that is timeless, it's inevitable, mm. it's part of a cycle, and it's contemporary as well. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask as well, like, why, why do you think you made this particular work? Well, it, I won't go into the whole saga because this was the second iteration of the work. The first iteration, which we applied for funding for, we didn't get funding, but in, in the end I was... I was 
I was relieved, to be honest. That was very much focused on just burning the tower. I was going to make a, uh, a major video installation of the tower burning down and then rising up again and burning down and rising up again, and that was going to be it. That was, that was the work. So I went back to square one and thought, right, I'm just going to redo the research right from the beginning and sat down at the computer and typed in Tilbury. And for the first time, it's very strange, for the first time ever, the first thing that popped up was the Tilbury Trojans, a skinhead gang from the 1960s. And I thought, we've got it, a skinhead gang from the absolutely perfect. And that changed the whole project from that moment. The crucial thing that that did was gave a way of genuinely involving local people in a genuine event because I... I had the idea that we could we could use the skinheads. What would we use them for? And I, I had this idea of having a procession when they would carry a small model of the tower to to the site which became the burn site. They would carry it there as if they were carrying like an icon. It's funny how your mind works. It was based on something I'd actually seen in Japan. Um, when people carry little, like little shrines in the in the high summer in Tokyo, they have all these local festivals. I think the Japanese connection was it was quite. I witnessed this, and it was you know it was it was men, it was kind of chunky men carrying <laughs> carrying this little object around the streets, and for some reason this popped into my head, and I thought, yeah, that's it, that's what we can do. We'll have a small tower, and it will be. The fact that they're carrying it indicates the, the, the importance that it has to them and the symbolic value that it has to them. And it gives them a role, it gives them a very specific and particular role. And it also relates, again, back to the Iliad, because when after Achilles kills Hector, son of King Priam of Troy, they have a huge funeral for, for Hector. And part of the funeral ceremonies is the funeral games. And I thought, right, that's it, we'll have our funeral games and we will use the site, the, the wonderful burn site. Um, we'll use that and we'll have games. We will have the funeral games on the site and then we'll burn the town down on the site. There's something very sort of like sombre and serious about a procession. Yes, exactly. And there's like a real like gravitas to that, I think. It would also be really interesting to hear a bit more about the people that were involved as performers in the film and what role they played. Yes, yes, they were a very interesting mix, actually. The participants in the film, they were a mixture of local volunteers and theatre professionals. Um, the initial contacts were made by our performance coordinator called Jules Easley, who was locally based and uh, worked for the Royal Opera House at... at at the production park in Perfleet, uh, helped with their PR. She was locally based. She had a very wide experience of both the, the voluntary sector and the art sector across Thurrock and, and Essex. Anyway, so she was our contact. And then she managed to 
make contact with a range of volunteers and they ranged in age between 12 and a half, who was Riley, the young boy that you see on his bicycle at the beginning of the film. And our oldest volunteer was Mike, whom you see heading up the procession in him. The first time he'd ever worn a pair of jeans, he said. <laughs> anyway, so they, beca they became the skinheads carrying the small model tower. Also in that procession are final year students of physical theater from the East 15 Acting School in Southend and they fight in the funeral games so it was very exciting to be able to connect with them, work with them and let them let loose on, on their fighting skills. That was great, that was wonderful. The role of Achilles was played by a professional actor, Mark Bell, who had been a teacher at East 15 and, and it was the students who suggested that I contact him, which I did, and he was happy to take on the role of Achilles because that was very important. We needed somebody who could <coughs> carry that off with, with real presence, which he did. And the procession and the fighting sequences were choreographed by Charlie Morgan, who was, uh, uh, she worked, she, at that time she was based in the Mercury Theatre in Colchester, where she was a movement director, theatre director, uh, superb, absolutely wonderful, and just marvellous at working with the volunteers and also with the professionals. She was a, a marvellous bridge to that. So the performance brought together a mixture of volunteer and professional participants from very locally from Thurrock and we used the, the Beehive Voluntary Centre in, in, in Thurrock, that became where we re rehearsed. And so it brought together participants from Thurrock and the surrounding areas and they all worked very, very well together. Mm. And just in relation to that performance, because um, I know the outfits were very carefully considered. I just wanted to ask you about like the process of deciding on that costume and yeah, who was involved in that? Yes, well, we worked with a costume designer called Leslie Ford, who was also based at, at the, the Royal Opera House Production Park at Perfleet, which has a, had a wonderful kind of outreach programme, cultural outreach programme locally, which has been very well supported. And uh, Leslie was based there, and she and I worked together very closely on the costume design, because obviously the skinhead look is really specific and really it conveys a, a message you know guys who look like that <laughs> you better get out of the way if because they're you know they could be trouble shall we say but Leslie was also interested in finding a way of um, linking it up with the with the historic Trojans so we had to find a way to do that and and she came up with a very clever solution I wanted the fighting team to be very clear very kind of simply dressed so they've got the very clear skinhead look they've got just the plain white t-shirts with a logo which is a Trojan helmet and they've got the jeans they've got the boots and then in the procession uh, Leslie wanted to make little although the the look when you the first look you see it's a kind of skinhead look you know they've got they've got the jeans one of the women who had lovely long hair Leslie found a little pork pie hat for her so it, it makes a lovely skinhead look but if you look closely at the details they too have got logo of Trojan helmets on their t-shirts some on their jackets and Leslie allowed the the team the volunteers she worked with them to design uh, using different materials like felt, like applique, so they would cut out the helmet shape and then stitch it. And that was a very, it was an interesting project for the volunteer group who made the costumes, which again, Leslie brought together. She found this 
group of volunteers, mostly mostly young women, I must say, who had an interest in costume or fashion and wanted to gain this experience. So it was a fantastic experience for them. And all, that was all done at the production park at at, at um, High House, it's called, in Thurrock. And I guess also the music is such a key part hugely of the film. Key, hugely key, because the thing, you when you're dealing with skinheads, you're dealing with this very particular aesthetic, visual aesthetic, and also sound aesthetic. And of course, the, the key to that was Trojan Records, which yeah, that was the scar recordings that the, the skinheads loved so much were made by Trojan Records. So of course, I tried to approach Trojan Records. <laughs> we really wanted to work with Trojan Records, partly because of the sound, the music, and also because of the logo, the Trojan Helmet logo, which is Trojan's um, logo, repeating myself, but hugely important, again, to the whole, the whole look, the whole aesthetic. So we did our best to contact Trojan Records, but we got absolutely nowhere. So we thought, OK, we're not going to be able to use their music, so we'll have to write our own ska music. So the musical director is a man called Charlie Skelton, a superb musician based in Southend, because everything was local. We wanted to keep everything local to Thurrock or Essex. And Charlie and I had worked together before, so we had a good working relationship. And he's a, he, he wrote ska music for us and then, you know, found a group of musicians to record it. But, and he also, also, brought in the very ancient music as well so we wanted we we charlie um designed and made a lyre which he'd actually made for a previous project of mine and we used that as the music when young riley comes cycling in on his bicycle the music you hear there is charlie playing the lyre uh, so it's his it's his take on what ancient music could very possibly have sounded like because we studied the design of the lyre and Charlie's able to make musical instruments so he made it and figured out how it was strong and how that might sound. So we had, we managed to make a link in the music between ancient times and obviously not exactly contemporary times because skies, you know, it emerged in the 60s as far as I know. But we were able to, we just went ahead and did our own take on it. And I think in the end that was, that was a much better solution actually than having little chunks of, you know, pressure drop, which I was, I was very keen on having pressure drop, but without Trojan's permission that was obviously impossible so we did our own and actually I think that worked out very well and also the music the places in which we used the particular types of music it became quite clear where they should be in the film like the lyre at the beginning and then we bring in the ska music comes in in the fighting sequences and then it builds to a kind of crescendo when we burn down the tower. And I guess that kind of leads to another key part of the film, mm. which is obviously the burning down of the tower. Oh, heavens, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. This was this was enormously important, obviously, because um, in a sense, this was, was this was the kind of overwhelming symbol in a way that that brought everything together. So um, it was very important to get that right. And I was introduced to a gentleman called Steve Taylor of Four Fish Designs. And he designed, he has a long history of both theatre design and also working with um, 
theatre groups, performative groups, just making props, but he, he made absolutely superb, superb. So the tower itself, the design of the tower, is based on a real tower, which is a radar tower in Coalhouse Fort Park in East Tilbury, which is where we actually shot the film. It was shot in Coalhouse Fort Park. And the radar, there's a radar tower there right on the, on the, the banks of the estuary. It was built during World War II, and it was, it was disguised. It looks like a water tower. And when I first saw it, I, I couldn't believe my eyes because it looked exactly like this tower that I'd been kind of imagining. I'd have this, because I had this overwhelming desire to burn down this tower as, as the main metaphor for the piece. And the tower I'd imagined in my mind looked exactly like the radar tower when I eventually saw it in Coalhouse Fort Park. Anyway, Steve studied this tower in great detail and he made both. He made the very small one, which is carried in the procession, and then he and his team made uh, a 30-foot-high model of the radar tower, which is the one that got burned down, and it was, it was perfect in every detail. It was, an exact, both, it was an exact facsimile of the radar tower. I always remember when they, they put it on the site. The burn site was very important. That was identified for us by Ray Reeves, who is the park ranger at Coalhouse Fort Park. Coalhouse Fort Park is a site of special scientific interest. So it has to, it's, it's protected, it's a protected area. So Ray was a great supporter of the project and he found a space where he could keep the grass cut down for us so that we could build this huge structure. It was enormous, it was about 30 feet high. We could build it and then we could burn it down. But we were only allowed to do that either in September or April because otherwise we would um, we might disturb the birds they have overwintering birds that come from the Arctic and they nest and you know they hang out in Sport Bar and we weren't allowed to disturb them so Ray again was another crucial loc very local very particular bringing that very particular knowledge into the project which we we had to build into the project which was fantastic Anyway, so it was it, it was Steve Taylor who who built who designed and built the towers, <clears throat> and then the actual burn again. Steve recommended a company called Bright FX, and that's what they specialise in. They're a pyrotechnic company because we had to. The burn, it couldn't just all go up in one big whoosh, you know, it, it had to be a controlled conflagration. So they had to, once the tower was up, once it was erected, I'll never forget seeing one of Steve's team going around it with a tiny little paintbrush and just painting in the very final details so that it was perfect before we, we burned it, before we burned it down. Anyway, uh, Bright FX had to rig the tower with uh, flammable material um, so that and then they lit it in a very particular place so that the, the flame emerged initially as a, just one little flicker of flame and then it, it built up, built up inside and then emerged into this huge, fabulous conflagration. Mm. And I mean, it, I think what's really amazing about the film is how many people are involved, mm. yes. how expansive yes. the film in terms of its like making reaches yes. out into Thark. And, um, I wanted to kind of bring, go back to Jonathan, oh, who's mentioned yes. earlier, yes. and just ask a bit more about him. Yes, Jonathan Catton was the, my very first supporter in Thurrock. He was the first meeting. We had a meeting with, in very initial stages, we'd had a meeting with what was then the Thames Gateway Development Corporation. And 
they recommended that that there were the, it was the first recommendation that I go to East Tilbury and have a look at the park and then, you know, go go and and investigate Thurrock a bit further. So on their advice, I did that, and I was they suggested that I should see Jonathan Catton. Now Jonathan was the uh, Thurrock Thurrock. Thurrock Heritage Officer, let me get that right, and he was based in the Thameside complex in Grays, which became our kind of one of our bases for the project. Um, so I went and had the very first meeting, the one-to-one -one meeting, just me and Jonathan, because none of my team could come to this meeting, and I thought, oh dear, what if I, what if Jonathan and I don't get on, and I, I ruin the whole project? Not a bit of it. I, I, I went to Thameside, which has a, it's a quite a, a 1960s complex. It's got everything. It's got a theatre, a library, all the rest of it. Anyway, I walk into the entrance hall, and this gentleman comes forward and says, "So you're the person who wants to burn the place down." And I said, yep, 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 that's me. And up we went up to, up to his office, which is, he, he personally, he's a local man, he's dead now, very sadly, much missed. He's a local, lives in East Tilbury Village, locally born, had a lifelong interest from a boy in archaeology, a more or less self-taught archaeologist who then became the Thurrock Heritage Officer. He established the museum. He's got this little museum there, which is Jonathan's work. There's a library there. There's an archive there. And that's what he he has he has generated over the years. So he was an absolutely crucial supporter. And as well as this deep knowledge of Thurrock, he also likes to let other people learn about Thurrock. That's a very important aspect of what he used to do. So he was crucial, and he was crucial at a very particular stage. And so maybe, you know, even though he's no longer here, his legacy sort of lives on. It very much does. Mm. He's very much remembered with great respect of the museum. So far, although there is a question mark over the future of the Thameside complex, but so far the museum and the archive are still there, mostly run by volunteers, but they're still there. And I think it's the fact that he was so loved, he was so highly regarded that so far, his wonderful work is hanging on there at Thameside, but there is a, there's a question about the future of that building. Yeah, and so, and so what's happening now in Thurrock? Well, uh, the two places that were key to uh, our work, the Thameside complex, and also Coalhouse Fort, which we show in the film, um, and Coalhouse Fort Park is still open that's still functioning that's but the the fort itself has been closed it, it used to be run by a team of volunteers but but they couldn't cope with the the endlessly increasing admin and expectations of them and the council is supposed to do something to ensure that the fort is maintained uh, as and, and open. However, the council is in all manner of financial difficulties at the moment, and the coalhouse fort remains closed. It's not accessible to the public. Thameside Theatre, there, there was talk of it being, the Thameside complex, rather the whole complex, there was talk of it being closed down, sold off. So there's been a local, big local campaign to keep coalhouse fort open and also to save the Thameside Theatre. Because these are crucial places. We, it was how we were able to you know, physically connect with people to develop this big cultural project. Mm. And so I, I guess thinking of that, yeah, thinking about all the people, the communities that are sort of driving mm. almost um, like the continuation of these really important places 
indirect they're part of its like culture essentially um how what do you what was the response of people in Thurrock of to the film well um i i don't know about Thurrock in general but i do know about the people who took part in the film because we premiered the film at mm. the Thameside theater mm. we had the first screening there and um, everyone was of course invited so by the time we got, by the time we made the film, I should mention our director of photography, by the way, whom I haven't mentioned, who shot the whole burn handheld for half an hour, Richard Carlton, superb, superb. I should just mention that. Anyway, so when the film was shown, thanks to Richard's superb cinematography, um, there it was on the big screen. So everyone was invited, everyone came. As I say, we probably had around Oh, between 40 and 60 local people who had been involved in one way or another. Everyone was invited. They all came with their friends and family. Uh, most of the production team came and they filled the cinema, which is a real proper cinema. So there it was on the big screen. I was terrified. I was hiding in the back row and everybody watched the film in complete and utter silence. And then they broke into this a tumultuous applause so it I and everybody was talking about it afterwards and I think I think I think people were proud of the film that was the impression I got I, I got the impression that they were relieved in a way you know because the thing that they had taken part of was was something that had it had it was trying to be serious. It was trying, it was produced to the highest possible level we could do, thanks to the wonderful team. Um, and they saw that, they recognized that. So they saw that the time and trouble that they had given to be part of it had been respected in a way and was reflected in the film itself. So we had a fabulous night. We had a great party. <laughs> we had a great party. We had a wonderful time. And the film, I'm glad to say, has been, it's been screened quite, not a lot, but it has several, several, several screenings. And, and you know, they continue. And it always has a very positive response. Mm. So I, th I think we pulled it off. We pulled it off. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, for me, it's a very happy, it's a happy memory and a, a wonderful, a wonderful step forward, I think, in making my work, which was definitely taken to a much higher level, thanks to having to work within that community and learn learn from the people. I, I thought it would be hard, you know, to put my idea. I, I was frightened about opening up my idea to, you know, a whole lot of a community. What does that mean? And in fact, what it meant was this absolutely wonderful dialogue with the people who chose to engage in the project for their own reasons. They brought their own interests, their own concerns, their own skills. So we ended up with this wonderful, rich dialogue and hopefully a, a, a very, a very rich uh, resulting film. I mean, the film feels like so layered and deep. And I think there's like a real sense of vulnerability that's expressed in the film. And it makes sense that that came from, you know, the participants, their openness. I think there was almost like a mutual vulnerability, you know, from you bringing your ideas yes. to people and for them to be receptive yes. and engage on that level. I think is it, you really feel that like there is an emotional, quite visceral feeling about the film. Um, so, yes, thank you so much, Lynn.
Thank you again for joining us for this Art360 podcast. You can watch Lynn's film on Vimeo. We would be really interested to hear your own reflections and also welcome your thoughts and feedback on the Art360 podcast, especially as we continue to speak to more artists and share conversations on archives and legacy. Art360 Foundation is a charity, so if you can, please do consider supporting us by donating through our website. You can also find out more about our bursary programmes and events there. I hope you've enjoyed listening and you come back for the next episode. And finally, a huge thanks to George Gen, who has co-produced this episode with Art360 Foundation.